Okay. So this is our sixth week that we've been working on our overview um, of the Bible, going through the different sections of the Bible, different books of the Bible, um, getting getting a um, just a, a good overview so that as we go through, um, we can... Sorry, I'm just like briefly trying to see what time it is so I know what time I need to end. There's a big glare on the clock. Okay. Um, uh, so doing it, a big overview of the Bible so that as we go through in the future, um, you know, it's, you know, a little bit more context and what each book of the Bible is about. And it's just a good reminder. So we've been working our way through that. Um, so, um, and then I, I encourage you to go back and you can go on the church website and um, coldspringcf.com slash media and you can listen to um, listen or watch the past weeks and catch up on that and I encourage you to do that um, if you'd like. Uh, so first we talked about the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And um, we talked about... Um, Adam and Eve, how they broke faith with God and they didn't trust him. Sin entered the world um, when they decided to do things their own way. And so God started a rescue plan to save us from sin and bring us back into close relationship with himself. We talked about how God used Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, as part of that plan. And in the historical books, which we finished recently, um, we learned... Um, we saw God raise up King David, a man after his own heart, and he made a promise to David that a descendant of his would sit on the throne forever, which is Jesus. And we also learned about the cycle of apostasy that the Israelites went through when they would sin and God would raise up a godly judge or king to help save them. They would turn to God and then they would turn away from God again and worship um, idols. And um, eventually because of that, God tore their kingdom in two, and they became um, two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, and because they continued to turn from God, uh, both of the kingdoms were taken into exile, and Judah was in exile for 70 years before returning back to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. So that's what we've talked about so far. And so that leads us to our next group of books, which is the writings right here, also known as the poetic um, and wisdom books. Um, so we're going to go through the writings today, which is Job through Song of Solomon. Um, so, so far we um, have been talking about history, but so we've gone through that through that first half, but the second half when we have the writings and then we've got like these prophetic books and then we'll finally be done with the Old Testament. Um, so next week we'll go through these prophetic books and it's going to be more of an, of an overview because we won't be able to dive into each book um, to get through that. Um, so all of the poetic books of the writings, um, or excuse me, let's, let me see that again. Um, yeah, all of these poetic books, they fit into um, the wisdom literature except for Psalms. So Psalms um, isn't considered part of the wisdom literature, but it is part of the writings. 
And the rest of the books that we're going to be talking about, both in the um, writings and the prophetic books, they all overlap with the books that we've already talked about. So, you know, everything here and here, timeline-wise, pretty much overlaps um, with things that we've already talked about, and mostly in this history range. Um, so today... Um, what? Today, um, we're talking about the writing, so I already told you all that. Sorry, jumping around here in my notes. Um, And when I turn my back to my notes, apparently I lose where I'm at and say lots of things fast. And poetic and wisdom books. So, first we need to remember the difference between historical writing and poetic writing. Um, So, the Old Testament is filled with poetry, and it often uses poetry to impart wisdom to us. Um, I am not an expert in poetry, but I'm going to give you just a little bit of what we need to know to get a basic basic view on this. Um, so Hebrew, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme like a lot of poetry we know. Um, it often uses parallelism. And parallelism is when the second line of a pair of sentences repeats or echoes, contrasts, or balances the thought of the first sentence. And we'll go through that today. And there are several variations of parallelism. Um, for example, uh, they are more precious than gold than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. So you can see how the second second sentence, you know, there, um, than much pure gold, it reflects that first sentence before it. Um, honey from the honeycomb, it reflects that um, sentence before it. So um, it can kind of do that. Another one, um, a wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to the mother. Again, that second portion relates to the first. You know, it's like a contrast. It's the opposite. So poetry in the Bible and Psalms and Proverbs, it uses this a lot, this seconding sequence, parallelism, where the second sentence relates to the sentence before it. That kind of helps us to know um, what kind of writing we're looking at in the Bible. So historical books are history. If the author said that David killed Goliath, um, then we know that David killed Goliath. But poetry is different, and it uses a lot of imagery and figures of speech. Uh, The words paint a picture, and it's not always literal. Um, For example, in this way, he will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So this is using imagery. It's not saying that God has feathers or that he has wings. It's using imagery to say that like a mother bird, you know, like an eagle or a mother hen, um, God will, you know, David was talking about God gathering um, him or gathering us up under his um, wings to protect us. So it's a image, a picture of protection, just like um, a mother bird would do. So um, that is where we wouldn't take it literal that God has feathers or wings, but the image of God um, caring for us and protecting us from storms and danger. Um, 
And so this, again, is important, is why it's important to know the difference between the different styles of writing in the Bible. And remember that the books and letters of the Bible were written to actual people in actual places for an actual purpose. So it's not written to us, but it's written for us. And it's all been collected for us to, to learn from. But it was at that time written to a specific people. First, we're going to start with, we're going to move on. We're going to start with the book of Job. Um, Job is the first of the writings, and it has 42 chapters. The book of Job is considered a great classic of ancient writing, but it's possibly one of the most challenging books in the Old Testament. We don't know the author of Job or when exactly it was written. It's possible that it was written anywhere between the time of King Solomon and the exile to Babylon. But it's written about a man that possibly lived in the time of the patriarchs, so like Abraham and stuff. It's possible that he lived back then, just by some context clues. And um, the author also used an ancient form of Hebrew and a different style of writing, so scholars have kind of had some troubles. Um, it's been more of a challenge um, in translating and, and time-wise and things. So different translations can sometimes have a little bit of dif- differences, but the important thing is the overall story of Job. So Job is the story of a wealthy man who loses everything, and in his pain he wonders why God would allow all this to happen to him. So chapter 1 starts with introducing Job. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. So Job was a righteous man, and um, God blessed him. He had many children. It goes on to talk about him having many children and livestock and servants. Um, And he's, you know, that he's a man of great integrity. He loves God and follows his commands. And then we go to a meeting between God and the adversary. The adversary or Satan, um, which means accuser or enemy. And uh, here we go. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the, throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So the adversary challenges God, and he's saying that Job or any other person that loves God is only doing so for the benefits of the blessings. That if all the blessings were taken away, then a person couldn't love God just because they're God. So Satan thinks that if he breaks the link between righteousness and the blessing, that he will expose Job and all righteous people as frauds. So this is why God takes up the challenge um, to prove not just to the adversary, but to all the angels and to all mankind that humans can love God through terrible hardships just because he's God. 
Um, so Job does lose everything. He loses his children. Um, they die. His livestock are taken away. His servants are taken away. He loses everything. And at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So the adversary said that Job um, came back to God, and he said that Job is still healthy, and that if his health was taken away, that he would surely curse God. You know, that, that taking away his possessions and his family wasn't enough, that he was still healthy, but if that was gone, then Job would curse God. Uh, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Um, so now after this point, three friends show up. Um, so Job is, he's miserable cause he's covered in sores. He's sitting on the ground in ashes. He's scraping his sores with pieces of broken pottery cause he itches so much. And three friends show up and they sit quietly with him for seven days. And when they talk, they say that the terrible things that are happening to Job is because of his sin. They go on and on and on about it. In fact, the rest of the book is mostly a debate between Job and his friends going back and forth um, about this. Job is wrestling with why this is happening to him when he's been faithful to God, and he's wondering where God's justice is in all of this. Then God speaks from a storm, And he doesn't say why all these things are happening. But God says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? So um, God is saying, and he says for the, the next couple chapters here, who's to question whether I'm doing the right thing or not? And, um... You know, he's, he's saying, look around, look at, look at all this. I'm God. I made everything. Um, you know, do you see when I care for the wild animals? Do you, uh, make the sun rise and the sun set? Um, you know, that you, you don't know my ways. And, um, then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. So Job knew that he was talking about things that he didn't understand, and he realized that God is just and wise. God rebuked Job's friends, and God gave Job more than he had before. So he he had more children, and and um, all of his livestock and everything was multiplied. So the book of Job is a little bit different. Um, the author isn't trying to teach us about meetings in heaven between God and Satan, um, because it's in the writing section, we know that it's poetry and metaphors, um, similes, alliteration, and they're all being used to make a point. Uh, we need to focus on the lesson that's behind the details. The adversary is silenced. Job's friends are silenced. Job is silenced, but God is not. 
God's delight in the righteous is shown to be just and true. Even though Job had many questions for God, he never cursed God or turned away from him. So we learn that God is in control, that there is more going on than we can possibly see or understand because we live in a difficult and unjust world. God is trying to teach us to trust his wisdom even when bad things happen, even when we're suffering. God treasures you and your righteousness above all else. Uh, Love God for who he is and above all else. So, and also just a reminder, when you read the book of Job, remember that the friends were not giving good advice. Um, They seemed that, uh, they assumed that the logic of their theology could account for all of God's ways. But as we learned, uh, God's ways are far above our ways. So sometimes you'll hear people quote um, the things that the friends have said, and, um, you know, they're taking that out of uh, context. So um, it's just good to understand what the context is um, in that. So we are moving on to the next book. Next book of the Bible is Psalm. And I always want to say Psalms. Psalm. It's a book full of Psalms. It's the longest book in the Bible. It's 150 chapters. Psalms is quoted by Jesus and the authors of the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book. Psalm means song. And there are different types of psalms. Uh, Psalms of lament. Uh, Lament means that someone was sad or in trouble and they wrote a song to bring their troubles to God. Psalms of praise, praising God for who he is and what he's done. Psalms of thanksgiving, psalms celebrating God's law, psalms of wisdom and about Israel's kings, historical psalms about the history of God and his people, and prophetic psalms, which repeat the messages that different prophets had brought. Uh, Israel had many psalmists. The most well-known was King David. David was a great psalm, uh, songwriter, and in the book of Second Samuel, um, this is said about him. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. We're going to get down here to the bottom, um, but it... Whoop, It refers to him as the sweet psalmist of Israel, that David is the sweet psalmist of Israel. So David wrote at least 73 of the Psalms, and there's Psalms like Psalm 51. This is uh, the Psalm where David is repenting after the prophet Nathan came to him um, because he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. And the whole book, or that whole chapter goes on um, with him repenting. Um, There's psalms of lament, like when David was being chased by King Saul. Um, Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. And there's those wings again, um, because he's trusting in God to protect him. Uh, we don't know what the music sounded like for Psalms because it wasn't written down, but many people put new music to Psalms or use verses from Psalms in their lyrics. Um, like, um, oops. Oh, I skipped that one. Um, I had this up here because, just a reminder, Psalm 23 is one of the most popular psalms, um, The Lord is My Shepherd. But back to the music, um, you may know this song, um, 
the O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, that's from a psalm. And as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. That's another one. Um, you might know that song. And there's there's more. Um, so psalms were the hymn and prayer book for the second temple Jews and in the synagogues. And um, so they were used. And we can use it too. Psalms gives us words to speak to God right from his word. And words to express our emotions to God. Um, to speak out in our high and low times. So um, times of praise and time of, times of lament. We can just speak out psalms to God if we don't know what to say. Next is the book of Proverbs, and I'm going to take a quick drink. So Proverbs is the 20th book of the Bible, and there's 31 chapters. A proverb is a short, witty saying stating a general truth or advice. It captures, it tries to capture a piece of wisdom. So Proverbs are meant to make you wise, to help you make good choices in life. Proverbs were very common in the ancient world, um, ancient Mesopotamia, Assyria, Babylon, Egyptians, and the ancient Chinese wrote Proverbs. Um, Benjamin Franklin also wrote Proverbs like, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, King Solomon uh, spoke 3,000 Proverbs. Um, it says he spoke 3,000 Proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. And this is talking about Solomon. Um, so there more than 500 of his Proverbs are in the book of Proverbs. See how many times I can say the word Proverbs. Um, they are life advice from God's perspective. Um, wisdom is, because wisdom is highly valued. So here are just, I'm going to read a couple of verses from Proverbs just to give you some examples. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this is talking about respecting God's holiness, which is the fear of the Lord, um, and uh, respecting God's holiness is how we begin to be wise. Uh, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people that are trustworthy. And again, you can see how the second sentence usually relates back to the first sentence as well. Um, but it's teaching us nuggets of wisdom to be wise and truthful. Whoever loves discipline, start over. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Love discipline. It's very blunt. Um, light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart and good news gives health to the bones. So joy and good news. Um, another version says uh, a cheerful look um, brings joy to the heart. So one thing to remember is that Proverbs are principles, not promises. Uh, it tells us what is usually the case, but it's not always the case. So we can, we can trust it. We, I mean, we can stand on it. We can take it to the Lord. Um, but it's, sometimes it's, it's not the case. Like, um, this one, the fear of the Lord adds length of life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. This is a principle. It's not a promise. Um, we know people, you know, that have trusted the Lord and their life was short and people that were wicked and they lived a long life. Um, so it's, it's not always the case, but it is the general principle and it is the general 
thing that usually happens. So when we fear the Lord, we live a long life, and so we want to fear the Lord. Um, so not a guarantee, but a principle, and we can take it to the Lord, and we can stand on it and say, Lord, I'm, I'm, uh, I trust you, I fear you, and I trust you for a long life. Um, another one is commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. If I choose to rob a bank and commit that to the Lord, I hope that the Lord will not establish my plans. Um, but if I'm in line with what God wants for me to do, I can trust that he'll establish my plans and I trust him in that. And if it, my plan doesn't succeed, then I still trust God um, because he knows what's best for me. So it's important to know, again, what type of writing that we're reading um, as you go through. Next book of the Bible is Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's a shorter book with 12 chapters. The author is unknown, but it's possible that it was Solomon. Uh, Ecclesiastes in Hebrew means preacher or teacher, one who gathers people together for a talk. And the book is kind of like a sermon to a group of people in Israel. The preacher is telling the story of the search for meaning or happiness and what's worthwhile in life. Um, it starts the... The book starts out with meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And the whole book really goes on to uh, talk about everything being meaningless. Um, but what they're, you know, they're talking about, they're saying pleasure, work, education, wealth, um, you know, it, He's saying it can all vanish in an instant, um, or we do all this work in a rat race and then we and then we die, and it'll all be gone. So, you know, it's meaningless. And really what the author is taking a look at here is what life is like if God isn't involved. Um, and it's asking the question, what really matters? And so uh, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, he wraps it up by saying, Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. So Ecclesiastes is saying that the world is the wrong place to look for our happiness, um, and that uh, if this world is all there is, then this life is meaningless. Um, if the things we run around and do, and the pleasures and and everything, if that's all we do and we're just doing it to accumulate wealth and, and whatever, that it's meaningless. That happiness is beyond this world. That true happiness is found in God. Trusting in Him, following His commands, and letting Him worry about everything else. And that's where we'll find the meaning of life. So not in this world, but trusting in God. So that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. And now we go to the last book of the writing section, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is sometimes called uh, Song of Songs. And both names, either Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, comes from this first verse in Song of Solomon, which is Solomon's Song of Songs. So that's why they kind of pull it from either. Um, Song of Songs means the greatest of songs. So like King of Kings or Lord of Lords, like that's what it's saying. It's the song of all songs. 
Song of Solomon is different than any other book of the Bible. Um, it's Hebrew poetry that talks about romantic and sexual love between a man and a woman. And it's a collection of love poems. And uh, when Jewish rabbis were putting together the Old Testament canon, some wanted to leave out this book. Um, but like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, these writings had a connection to King Solomon, um, who was very important to the Jewish faith. So Song of Solomon still stayed in that um, canon, but it uses a lot of alliteration and things, but it would probably be on like the PG-13 and above book of the Bible, I suppose you'd say. Um, So the book uses a lot of poetic comparisons and alliterations, Um, like in one it's saying, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. So apparently this was very romantic to say these types of things. And it's good that each one has its twin. I guess that means that they had... The- had all their teeth, <laughs> and they were white as sheep, you know, and uh, I'd read that the goats of, on that mountain had uh, black hair, so it was referring to, like, the black hair. Um, so so those were compliments. Um, from this, I, I won't read, those Those are, like, the, the, the G-rated <laughs> part of Song of Solomon, so we'll stay with those ones. Um, so from this book, uh, we can learn that sexual love is a part of God's creation, that it's a sacred part of God's design for marriage. Song of Solomon talks about a garden or a vineyard. And so the whole book um, can really be looked at in the light of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with Adam and Eve in the garden before sin and just that purity of, of love. So it can it can be kind of looked back and related um, in that context. Um, and we can also look at it, it wasn't written for this purpose, but we can look at this as um, God's love for his bride, which is the church. Um, marriage is a good reflection of God's love for the church. And so this pure love in Song of Solomon, we can kind of see like a pure love that um, God has for his his bride. Like he's our, the bridegroom and we're the bride. And so, you know, that marriage reflects God's love for us. And that is the end of the writings section. So um, the wisdom and poetic books. So just to sum it up, uh, we need to remember that different styles of writing exist in the Bible, that in the writings there can be metaphors and poetic wording that we need to read differently than historical books. Um, But through all of it, we can see God's love for his people and for his bride. We look to him for our true happiness. And as we go through life, we can give all of our emotions and questions to God. And we can trust that the God that made the whole universe loves each one of us and cares for each one of us, no matter what is going on around us. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, you are good. I thank you that we can bring all of our emotions, the the joy and the sorrow, the frustration and pain and happiness, that we can bring all of that to you and all our questions to you, Lord, and that we can trust that you are good. 
that even if we don't hear an answer to our question, we know that you're working and that we can trust that you're good. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you love us. We thank you for your plan, that you work this plan to save us so that we can be in close relationship with you. We just love you, Father. You're so good, and we just bring ourselves to you today. Just show us ways to show your love to others this week, starting right in our house. And we love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.